0: This podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented.
1: Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.
2: Judgment Day approaches for the Jewish world, but also for Israel's Supreme Court as it hears the case of the planned judicial overhaul, the first phase of that. We will be speaking about the year just gone and the year ahead as we mark the new year with a very cherished guest. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcasts. The high holidays are upon us. Rosh Hashanah is first. And to think of that, you know, really a mixed up. Intertwined with, as you described, a judgment day here on earth, just a mere few days after this historic uh, day in the Supreme Court, um, really is an interesting point in time, I
2: think. I often do think there is a kind of divine scriptwriter watching over things. You just make sure the timing is always there. So we're entering, you know, the days of awe, the days of penitence. It begins with the new year, Rosh Hashanah culminates the 10 days of penitence culminates in, yeah, Judgment Day itself, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, so that's a, a week and a half away. And so there's always this sort of mood swing because New Year is a celebration and very positive. I always say to people who are not of our tradition, it doesn't work like the regular New Year. There's no <laughs> countdown, 10, 9, 8. There isn't, no. you know, a dropping of the You don't have the hangover from Square. the
0: manishevitz wine thing going on. You not don't really. really.
2: There are days in the Jewish calendar where, you, where one is commanded to drink to excess, but this is not one of those. So it's not New Year like that. Rather, it follows the usual pattern of a Jewish festival. So it begins, you know, sunset the the evening before as it were and then it's two days of eating and talking and being in synagogue if if you do that and gathering with family and so on so a lot of people really love it as just a favorite festival but hanging over you is this awareness that as well as looking forward to the new year you're going to be reflecting on what you've done wrong and who you have wronged and uh, and maybe seeking forgiveness in that 10-day window before, you know, the judgment is sealed and delivered on the most solemn day of the year, holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. So we're in that zone. And Mm -hmm. wouldn't you know it, that's when the judges of Israel's Supreme Court gather to debate, in some ways, surely one of the most significant cases that's ever come before them.
0: This really was a historic day in Israel, not only because this is the first time that the entire 15 uh, member supreme of uh, the supreme court sat and the bench uh, uh, convened but also because this is uh, a deliberation on Netanyahu's oh, the first part of the coalition's plan to curtail the judiciary itself. Uh, so it really is a, a, a crucial day in the history of this uh, country. Uh, essentially, the uh, judges were deliberating the uh, reasonableness clause and the decision by the Knesset to strike down. That is an important tool in the uh, judges' uh, uh, quiver, really, an important arrow in their quiver to oversee uh, the um, activities of the government. The minute that has been uh, struck down, uh, now the judiciary and the the Supreme Court needs to decide if it is essentially disqualifying this law. It would be the first time in the history of this country that the Supreme Court decides to strike down a basic law. We should say again that a basic law in Israel uh, should be the beginnings or the quasi uh, constitution. We don't have an actual constitution. So the decision whether to strike down a basic law is a very dramatic one. That is one of the reasons why there's a whole bench and all 15 judges were sitting uh, in this deliberation. I should also mention before we start our discussion on this, that this was not unprecedented, but pretty historic. The fact that it was all On live television, for 13 hours, Israelis could watch, and they did, by the way, in large numbers, this very serious discussion about not only their future, but uh, in a way, their past and, and what makes up that past.
2: Yeah. I mean, that very, just specifically on the televising thing, did they mm-hmm. have to make a special decision to do that, to allow in the cameras? Was that a, a, a decision of the court themselves, well, the this, justices?
0: This is essentially a decision made by uh, Stel Chayut, the chief justice who has been the advocate of opening up these discussions as much as possible to the Israeli public. And I have to tell you, Jonathan, it really is this this moment, right, when you see in this, these serious deliberations, all of what we have been talking about for the past eight and a half months, the, the emotions, the vitriol, the, the internal strife, all of it kind of funneled into jurisprudence, right, to this legal conversation about the Constitution, about what should be the Constitution, and about the deepest uh, questions of, of really the Israeli um, country.
2: Yeah, I I was um, following it, people, you know, a couple of news outlets were sort of live blogging it, giving you updates, Mm -hmm. as it was happening, some fascinating moments in there, you know, as always, people uh, watch to and read into the judges questions, does this reveal their state of mind? And, you know, I've learned covering US Supreme Court cases, that can be a, a fool's errand, because sometimes the question can seem really supportive of one side of the case. And in the end, the judge was just testing out the argument was really on the other side of the case and just wanted almost to play devil's advocate that happens in these proceedings. But a couple of the standout lines that leapt out of me, you know, there was one moment where one judge said that, you uh, it doesn't have to happen. Overnight with a black or white decision, you know, democracy can die in small steps. That's, I
0: mean, it's who's I mean, it supposed to be the next chief justice, yes.
2: And 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 really, I think was sitting just next to the chief justice, and it felt like a that was a big moment. And I thought of that slogan, you know, the Washington Post: "Democracy dies in darkness." You know, just these 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 lines that you suspect will be quoted in years to come, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and perhaps that was the intention of the of the judge in saying it in that in that very quotable way. And then this counter argument where. Where you know the one side is saying this is at odds with the fundamental principles as articulated in the country's founding document, the Declaration of Independence, which has almost sort of sacred status in Israel, that founding text, in some ways, in lieu of a constitution, it's the closest the country has to one, in you know, alongside those basic laws. And the lawyer for the government saying. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it was a declaration. It was just 37 people signed it. Why should that have holy writ status? You know, tearing down something which is a unifying document for the country over 75 years of history and saying, oh, you know, it's not so important. And you just realize that is the slippery slope you go down when you do this because you suddenly say things that human beings have elevated to have a kind of higher status, the rule of law, judges. If you want, you can always say, ah, it's just a few people in a room. What difference does it make? And that hmm. I felt was going on there. We should just say say something about this basic law notion, because I think when people hear you saying just a second ago, you you know, this is the first time they've gathered to discuss a basic law in this way, as if the basic law is somehow on a higher plane, I think people probably assume it was passed in a different way from a regular law that maybe it got, you know, like in America, constitutional amendment has to have the approval of every bit of the system, two-thirds mm-hmm. of this body, three-quarters of the state. As I understand it, this was t- just passed in a regular way, 61 to 59 in the Knesset. And you just add, I read some, one constitutional scholar said, it's no different from a normal law, it just has a little bow tied on it and a tag said saying basic. That's all, you just call it basic. It, is, it isn't... It doesn't have a separate kind of strength or standing in terms of the way it came to be a basic law.
0: You're completely right on that in the sense that this was, this is indeed, if the Supreme Court decides to strike down this basic law, and remember this is an amendment to the basic law, the judiciary, that's what uh, the Knesset has decided to amend. If it decides to strike it down, it will be the first time in the history of the country that that happens. Again, as you say, basic laws in this country can be enacted with a, regular majority. It doesn't need to go through. And and case in point, the United States amended its constitution once since 1992. Israel amended its basic laws 97 times since 1992. So you understand how easy it is to go through this process in a a 120-seat Knesset. And that is what a lot of people are saying. If it's so easy to write these laws, enact these laws, why shouldn't it be very normal and natural for the Supreme Court to oversee this process. That is the main question in front of the court, but there's another question. I mean, the court has to decide now, and of course the decision wasn't published and not decided yet. We have a three-month deadline for this. The court needs to decide whether it has the authority to strike down a basic law. That's the first question, and I think you could read into what the judges were saying, that most of them do think that the court has that authority. But the other question is, even if they have this authority is this the law, the basic law they are going to strike down? Meaning they can not decide that they have the authority to do it, but they're not going to touch this basic law. Uh, in American terms, I would say, is this the hill they want to die on, yes or no? I don't have a clear uh, answer on on what they will decide. As I said, there's a three month uh, deadline to write this uh, decision. But I want to go back, if I may, uh, Jonathan, to one of the highlights of this of this day. And you mentioned this: the uh, government's lawyer, Ilan Bombach, and what he said about the declaration of independence. First, we should say that the attorney general who represents the government, usually uh in front of the Supreme Court, refused to do so, Gali Baharav Miara, in this case, because she does not support this law. Uh, so it's very clear that the government and this attorney general are in complete co- collision course. Mm-hmm. We'll also remind our listeners, of course, the attorney general is the one, uh, one of the heads of the prosecution here uh, in this uh, country. So it's very clear that the Netanyahu coalition would want to Replace her with someone else and maybe open up the Netanyahu cases, but that's a future decision. So the uh, lawyer for the government, uh, Ilan Bombach, indeed said, because the discussion was about the authority that the Declaration of Independence gives to the court and gives the uh, legislature. And he said, uh, and you mentioned this, he said that the Declaration of Independence is a hastily compiled document endorsed by 37 unelected Signatories. Now you have to pause on that for a minute. I said it can't obligate us for the future, right? This was what he said. You have to pause on that for a minute. Because if there is one document that binds all Israelis, or let's say most of Israelis, it's the Declaration of Independence. It's the ethos of this country. And if you treat it as something that has just been hastily written and does not have any legal binding, you can argue. The legality of it, how binding it is, but you can't argue that this is the fundamental, you know, gospel that was supposed to be the continuation that was supposed to uh, turn into a constitution. Of course, the founding fathers were a little bit busy fighting the war of Israel's existence, so to actually do that in 1948. But the point is that this, to many, symbolized what the Netanyahu government is trying to do here, which is, again, to the people who oppose the government, sort of tearing down the foundations of of what Israel is.
2: Yeah, it's that big. I think that's right. I mean, to have a go at that document, um, you are one, you're left to wonder what is there left really for the country to unite around? I mean, as we're gathering in a moment of traditionally Jewish unity when, mm-hmm. Je- you know, Jews go to synagogues or not, but gather together in family homes to mark a new year, you know, that's something they have in common that, that, that tradition. And for Israelis forming a new society, the declaration did have this in a remarkably effective way, a sort of whole mythology around it. I actually made a radio show for for to mark the uh, anniversary of the 70th anniversary in 2018, a BBC radio documentary about the day the declaration was crafted. It's an amazing story about how the actual text was rushed to the Tel Aviv Museum to get there in time. The actual physical copy had only just been completed. All this anguish about whether God should be mentioned on not, And Ben-Gurion came up with this brilliant solution, the rock of Israel, you know, that phrase. Etc. You know, it was it was a bit of nation building that document, mm-hmm. and uh, and it had to be done swiftly and under great pressure. And um, you know, here's somebody to help his client saying, "Ah, it's not worth so much. Let's take, have a go at that legitimacy." Like we've we've been saying, that's what that's the path you go down if you are in the business of uh, shattering uh, liberal democratic norms. I think, and so that's what this has done. Um, you've told us about the timeline. It is about three months. I mean, I think it's an exquisite dilemma the judges are in. They, they, they've, it's not an easy call for them to make. You know, you can look at them and say, Oh my God, this is an awful thing. It's authoritarianism. Of course they must strike it down. On the other hand, the point of this case is about rule of law. And if this has been passed legally, the Knesset passed it. Then they will be forced to think to themselves, look, maybe this thing which undermines the rule of law was passed in accordance with the rule of law. And our job as judges may be to impose something which we believe in the name of the rule of law, which will in the end undermine the rule of law. I mean, it's a really almost philosophical moral dilemma therein. I don't think it's easy, a lot of people think ah oh, they're liberals they you know they're they're people mm-hmm. like me I'm sure they'll find this slam dunk no I think it will be a hard mm-hmm. hard case where in some ways their sort of moral instincts might pull them one way but their job is to enforce the letter of the law regardless of what they think even if it does compel them to saw off the branch of the tree that they themselves sit on
0: right and I think you could feel throughout this 13 hour uh, deliberation that they if if it was left to them they would not have wanted to have this dilemma in the sense that they if there's anyone we talked about a compromise or a potential compromise that was suggested last week and thwarted basically as as fast as it was published if if anyone in this country wants—I uh, don't think anyone in this country wants a, a uh, compromise more than the Supreme Court judges, because, of course, if a compromise is reached by the Knesset, then that makes this discussion not something that you need to arrive at some sort of a conclusion. That would sort of, quote-unquote, save them from making this decision, which, as you said, is dramatic. I think that we should mention— And we keep talking about this. Will this be a constitutional moment, a constitutional crisis in which the Supreme Court decides that a constitutional, semi-constitutional amendment is unconstitutional? This whole collision can happen much faster than we think. We were talking about a three-month deadline. But next week, the Supreme Court is deliberating this critical hearing in the petition that requests them to order Yariv Levine to convene the Judicial Appointments Committee. He has not done this for a very long time since the since the government was sworn in because he doesn't agree with the makeup of the uh, committee and he doesn't want to appoint judges with this makeup. He wants to change it. So if they tell him, if the court next week tells him, you must convene this uh, committee, and he says no, that's how fast we arrive at a constitutional crisis before we even make this or see this decision about the reasonableness clause. We We should say that as
2: well. Yeah, this is a slow motion constitutional crisis, but these will be, Mm -hmm. you know, eruptions of an absolute uh, clear and, you know, fast constitutional crisis if it goes the way Uh, it seems, you know, almost bound to unfold.
0: But I do want to point out another moment, if I may, in this this very long day of deliberations. It was Simcha Rotman. He is the he's the head of the um, uh, Constitution Law and Justice Committee in the Knesset. He was standing in front of the judges, the man who's steamrolling this uh, reform, essentially telling them that they are an oligarchical elite. You know, that was a moment. I think that a lot of Israelis were watching it thinking he is unbelievably rude to them. There were people from his political base thinking this quixotic moment in which the hero stands in front of 15 judges. And, you know, the Chief Justice Chayut answers, says to him, we're not here to protect the interests of the court. We're here to, to protect the interests of the public. That was also a very important moment in this very long day. And again, for Israelis watching this, and a lot of people were watching it. It had very high ratings, we should say. Um, for Israelis watching this, to hear it for the first time, these judges uh, that have been attacked for a very long time for being too liberal and, you know, for some of the Netanyahu coalition said much worse about them, to finally hear them and to see what they they think was really a fascinating moment.
2: And do you think the judges came out well from that process? Did they conduct themselves in a way that would impress the kind of neutral voter?
0: I think that the Israeli public saw a more diverse court than they had expected. There are six women out of 15 justices. The chief justice is a woman, Esther Hayut. You have two judges who are Mizrahi, not of Ashkenazi background. You have an Arab judge, like I think. And of course, a diversity of opinion in a way, because you do know that there are a few com- conservative judges uh, who think that the court doesn't need to strike down uh, this uh, basic law. So I think all in all, the Israeli public was was quite impressed by this.
2: All of which has been uh, followed by people around the world, Jews around the world following it with great interest. And it's a topic that people will be talking about around their uh, Rosh Hashanah table. And we have around our little table a rather special guest.
0: No better person, we believe, to survey the year that's gone by and look forward to the year ahead than New Yorker editor, Pulitzer Prize winner, and recent recipient of the Unholy Cherished Listener Award <laughs> for the year, David Remnick. David, thank you so much for being with us that, um, Shana Tova. Yeah,
1: Shana Tova. That is the best award one could get. And I, I, <laughs> I, am, I am your constant listener.
0: And we really uh, appreciate that, uh, as I always tell you, there's a quiz at the end of our conversation i, I even I,
1: I even must say I thought the summer vacation was well I say this with love, of course, overlong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Will you pick up that Who beef the hell with Jonathan gets off
1: three weeks? Oh, my <laughs> what is this France <laughs> <laughs> Social democracy. God we forbid.
0: apologize. We apologize. No back. taking off three weeks anymore. <laughs> We're sorry, David. Getting the Jewish, a little bit of the Jewish guilt for Rosh
1: Hashanah. That's Did you exactly notice that? Right. I, I want to
2: plant it early. So, talking of Rosh Hashanah and this time of year, I I, I think this is one of those little tests that t- tells you a lot about someone's personality. So, for Rosh Hashanah, New Year this season, where, when it happens, are you one of those people who spends a lot of the time looking back over the last year, thinking, oh, I should have done that, I didn't do this. Or are you all about the future and are you looking forward?
1: Such a good question, Jonathan. I, forward,
2: mm-hmm. onward,
1: <laughs> as the Russians say. You know, I have kids and, um, and I have lots of young people in the office and I have an institution that is about to turn 100 in about, I guess, 18 months or so. Whoa. The New Yorker. And so looking forward, it seems to me the most productive thing.
0: And you, But and I'm you? going to say in the Rosh Hashanah questioning line yeah. just for a moment. Sure. I mean, do you like Rosh Hashanah? Is I love it a Rosh, Rosh Hashanah. We, you? We, uh,
1: you know, we spend that night with very dear friends um, over dinner. It's always, uh, it's a glorious holiday to me. I have to say my favorite, though, is, is, is Pesach. I mean, uh, we have a very big Seder. With tons of friends, obviously missing friends and family too who are gone. Um, but it's a very big table and it's full of joy. It is by far my favorite holiday.
0: It's also yeah. Jonathan's favorite. I don't understand you two. Purim well, is yours? so much better. I mean, come on, you get drunk and in wear costumes. What is the matter with you people?
1: <laughs> you want to you want to dress up in funny clothing and and drink. I I, I hear that. I just well, it's, like you're part that one of our tradition.
2: No, I'm completely oh. with you on the Pesach thing, but I think these are good little personality tests, aren't they? I mean, you they know, are they, they when you're really hiring are. people, there they could are. be a diversity issue. But when you're hiring people at the New Yorker, you could use this instead of a psychometric exam. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but there but there would be diversity implications. I've been thinking about the... I'm going to go with your looking forward uh, matrix, but all three of the areas you specialize in uh, have had or about to have momentous years, and I'm talking about Israel, and the United States, and Russia. So of those, which is the one, when you look ahead, that sort of keeps you up at night?
1: Well, um, (laughs) do I have to choose? (laughs) I mean, the subject of the week here, politically, um, appropriate to our conversation about looking forward and looking backward, is, is time, is age, is mortality. We have a presidential... Here's our political dilemma right now, to boil it down. What stands between American democracy and oblivion is the um, earnest efforts but fragile being of Joe Biden in an election against just a blatant authoritarian. That's, That's where we are. And for one reason or another that we can discuss, the Democratic Party has convinced itself collectively, somehow, that Biden is the only person that can run, so far, anyway. And his achievements, to my mind, and we can discuss it, are quite remarkable in foreign affairs and in the economy and and in other ways. But he may lose. He may lose to someone who is under multiple indictments for very, very high crimes, and who's a proven... (laughs) Uh, it's incomprehensible the notion of a second trump term incomprehensible but it's it's quite possible that's 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 the situation that we're in so that everybody is talking about age capacities coherence um you know how old this one will be and that one will be if they got a second term. It's 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 very very nerve wracking.
0: It's a lot about op- optics essentially because they're not that far apart in age. But they're not you know, that far apart in Trump age. Trump looks more and, vital and than Biden does, and absolutely, more
1: absolutely. And I think if you were to publish transcripts of uh, Donald Trump speeches, or if he gives speeches, but 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 press conferences and rallies and put them side by side with Joe Biden, there's no question which one would be more coherent and penetrating uh, or have more integrity. Biden's. I mean, Trump is wildly incoherent, but somehow because of the sheer force of his presence on his feet, this, mm-hmm. God forgive me, vitality, however perverse and malevolent, the imagery is that he's somehow... Uh, uh, younger, and that the, this this issue doesn't attach to him in the same way. Do
0: you think that Biden should run?
1: Should I'm he step down? I'm, I'm not in the should-shouldn't business. I, I think, though, I think I'm more in the, in the business here of thinking it through where we stand. I don't understand why there are no opponents at all. Mm. None. I mean, remember in 1980... In the Democratic Party, you, you had a uh, incumbent, um, uh, Jimmy Carter, and he had a very serious challenge from Ted Kennedy within his own party. Now, that fell apart pretty rapidly for all the reasons we know. Ted Kennedy gave a disastrous interview to Roger Mudd of CBS News, and he was asked, why do you want to be president? And He couldn't kind of come up with a coherent answer. Fumbled that all, a bit. Yeah, it was all downhill from there. Not that Carter was strong in every way, to say the least, as, as an incumbent. But no one seems to dare, and for one reason and another, we can discuss. Kamala Harris's approval ratings are lower even than than Biden's. She's just never achieved any liftoff at all. I, 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 quite frankly, I think you know no small part of that has to do with race. Mm-hmm. But there we are. That that that's where we stand. And you know, I'm not terribly original about this, but if it came to, say, the post-convention period in 2024, and Joe Biden were to have an episode similar to what Mitch McConnell just experienced, or he just fell in some tragically comic way, that could sway the election because these things are inherently close in American politics. They're really close. Just by nature, Democrat-Republic split right now is, so much of it is already baked in.
2: So that's that keeps a, you up.
1: That keeps a, you a, up at night. That's a very perilous situation. And, I, and it poses challenges on how to cover it. You know, the traditional way to cover a presidential race early on like this is you you profile this one, you profile that one, you investigate the other one, and there's a range of, we already know who these people are so well. I mean, I just read Franklin Forrest's book, The Politician, about Biden. And, you know, it's it's a very good job. It's a very good, he, he got quite inside. But, you know, he's a familiar character in American politics and has been for 40 years years. I don't know what the hell I don't know about Donald Trump at this point. I mean, of course, there'll be new little morsels, but they all reflect the same human and sensibility and malevolence that we're we're all pretty familiar with.
0: We've been spending a a couple of minutes on this conversation not talking about Israel. Uh, And, you know, we (laughs) tend to say that Israelis are quite self-involved. So I'll prove that by Mm. trying to connect Mm. um, the U.S. and Israel and and say that the similarities seem to be that large sections of the electorate in both countries are somewhat unaffected by any kind of criminal behavior by uh, the candidates, whether it be Trump or the actual Prime Minister Netanyahu. You know, what does that, I guess, mean uh, for the future of a democracy, right? If, If the voter is not at all you know, deterred by this.
1: I think it's arguable, and I don't, I think I've written enough and we've discussed enough, Netanyahu, you know my feelings about him over time, but I think his crime crimes, the things that he's indicted for or the, the things that he's under investigation for as well, are the least of it with him. That most most of his, it, obviously it's connected to the, the, the politics and the uh, judicial reform so-called, but the crimes that, Donald Trump is accused of are insurrection against his own government, and while the so-called Russia Gate uh, matter has been dismissed, there's no question that his affection for uh, Vladimir Putin is what it is. He 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 reannounces it constantly. He just did it yet again. He yet again described his affection and admiration for the strength uh, and very being of Vladimir Putin. This happens regularly. Uh, here's what I would say about the situation in Israel, and you referred to self-involvement, and that I'm sure goes for Americans as well, is that that is unless you're somebody like me or, or Jonathan who pays attention to this a lot, it's not topic A, B, C, or D, or E. It's, it's just not and how it's received in the American Jewish community is breaks down in ways that you're well familiar with. I, I'm in a much more secular liberal, you know, if we're painting caricatures uh, area, and I think you, and I've written about it, and I think you can imagine broadly where I would fall. Uh, my uh, more orthodox and conservative uh, brothers and sisters, Um either feel a very different way, that is to say sympathetic to Netanyahu, and, uh, or, they, or they're not thinking about it much at all. Mm. Much at all. I've even gotten that reaction. And I, I, I watch these demonstrations, and I admire not only their size, but also their persistence. And that's incredible. And what that suggests about the possibility of a resurgence of that camp, broadly speaking, in Israel, and of course, on the left here, and I even to to a great extent to include myself, what's missing from that conversation, and I've heard Jonathan talk about this on the on the program, is that it's disconnected from the the Palestinian question, uh the Israeli-Jewish question, in the interests of forming as broad a coalition as possible. That's that's hard for the American left to wrap itself around too. But my first point is the main point, it doesn't register as subjects 1 through 5 even remotely for most for most people because it's seen as part of the larger fabric of the whole, of so much of the rest of the world
2: mm. because it's very funny that i mentioned those three areas that you've specialized in in your career the united states israel and russia and in a way it's the same themes that we keep coming back to in all three about authoritarianism and populism and so on but i just thought on your but your linking of what the protests in Israel and the perennial question of how Palestinians and Israelis can live with each other—it's—it's it, odd. This because this is a dog that didn't bark. This week was the 30th anniversary of that handshake on the White House lawn, which I'm sure you covered in some form. But you know, of Rabin and uh, Arafat and Bill Clinton presiding, and just the non-event of the 30th Total, anniversary. T- it,
1: it was. It was a. You know, anniversary journalism, as, as an editor, I'm not, unless that anniversary has definite resonance, because then there'll be a 35th anniversary, and then there'll be a 40th, and how many stories can you write with the same photograph of a handshake and kind of the usual quotes going back and forth. That didn't register much at all. Didn't register much at all. And Oslo is now sadly seen as if it's, it's even farther in the past than, than mm. it is. And I noticed in the Israeli press, the way this was covered, insofar as I can read it in English, which is, you know, it's far from complete, is also very retrospective and very deep in the past and didn't seem to be especially vital. What seems to be vital is what's happening in the politics of judicial reform and all that comes out of it.
0: I think in a way those those two are connected because we're in a moment in time in which Israel is really asking itself the deepest questions about, you know, who we are, where we want to be. And I think everything is opening up, That's the same uh, including, mm-hmm. right? Including, but is the same sort of feeling, right? Which, which is a an, on one hand, a very dangerous place to be at because you're staring into an abyss, but on the other hand, maybe a, an opportunity to, to change things or for, for, you know,
1: parts of the country well, for, to. From an American point of view, if you're, again, broadly like me, which is to say that 46% <laughs> that is so likely to vote for a Democrat in this race as opposed to... Cannot comprehend, even if you're a professional at this and you're interviewing people all day long and you're trying to understand it almost professionally, it is damn near incomprehensible that this a huge portion of the Republican electorate and even the American electorate is willing to forgive, ignore, and even endorse what the other half of the country seems as the crimes, the malevolence, the foolishness, um, and all the other qualities that attach to Donald Trump. This it, is a country that doesn't understand each other, even remotely, even remotely. And it seems that the greatest quality that a Republican Congressmen, Congresswoman can have is the ability to own the libs, not to conceive conservative-minded legislation, not to uh, protect the interests and the well-being of of their citizens in a way that's seen as conservative, but to own the libs, to play with their minds, to create huge false equivalences. Look Look at what's happening now in Congress. Right now in Congress, the two great waves are impeach Biden and shut down the government. Impeach Biden and shut down the government. And if that doesn't happen, we'll, we'll bring down the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House. This is considered the c- constructive activity of the Republican Party. That's very hard to <laughs>
2: comprehend. I just wanted to go back to the Oslo bit of the conversation, partly because of what you said about how it's not topic A, B, through you know, oh. L or M. I mean, I know that, but for somebody like you and you get, you sketched out your milieu of, of sort of liberal Democrat, New York, et cetera, a sort of article of faith for the, for 30 plus years would have been yeah, it's terrible, Israel, what's going on there, Um you know, insert latest event. Uh, but the ultimate resolution is a two-state solution. That's obviously how this has got to be resolved. And it's, you know, really, sh- it's a great shame that it hasn't been embraced yet. But that's eventually where we're going. It's 30 years on since the, you know, the big two-state solution breakthrough happened, that handshake on the lawn, Oslo Accords, it didn't lead to one. Things have only actually you know, deteriorated. Does somebody like you have a rethink in your mind about what the ultimate, even if it's a long way off, and no one's talking about it? Well, what I, the ultimate look, I, resolution
1: I of this should be, along with the the Bible, you know, despair is the ultimate and unforgivable sin. But when you see the course of how settlement has gone, when you see the course of how Israeli demographics and public opinion have gone. When you you look at the diplomatic history of the last 25 years, when you've seen terrorist acts of the past 25 years, which are serious, those don't conspire to uh, inspire any confidence in Oslo. And if in American or Israeli political commentaries, I understand it, if you kind of speak up for Oslo, you're seen as a terribly naive sentimentalist a terribly naive sentimentalist that doesn't understand present realities. The, the fact is that the number of American political actors who are you know, still talking about the two-state solution do so as a kind of throwaway line, but they're not invested in it. They don't see the political capital of trying. There are other issues to tackle, and they move away from it because it's it's it there's nothing in it for them other than losing and look at joe biden and netanyahu this is <laughs> what is in it for joe biden who has limited time limited political capital to say the least to invest yet again in in two state solution efforts when the israelis don't believe it when the palestinian side is so fractured it's almost ignored, which to me is also a, tr- a recipe for tragedy in the end.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, if we are on the topic of of tragedies, I would want to sort of open, uh, widen the prism and talk about sort of where, a kind of a world health check where we are uh, at the end of, of uh, this Jewish year. And I don't want to be too pessimistic, but if we're looking at you know russia ukraine you know iran isn't growing weaker putin isn't growing weaker let's focus on putin and, and russia and ukraine is there any are there any reasons for for optimism here
1: in the sh- in the very short term not at all uh, <laughs> i i don't know why you, you ukraine would be in the mood for love <laughs> i mean <laughs> in, in for negotiation <laughs> negotiate with whom and and for what to negotiate away some huge chunk of the eastern and, and part of their country as well as Crimea that's not happening e- after their country has been invaded butchered and flattened w- why would that happen and 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 Putin from his point of view hard as that is to conceive what's he going to do withdraw and say i made a mistake i, I don't think he's capable of that either politically or morally so in the very short term, most of the coverage has been military, which is to say, has this counteroffensive worked? Has it not worked? I think the general consensus is that it's it, it hasn't been a disaster, but it certainly hasn't been a colossal uh, breakthrough uh, in military terms. And so there you are. And I, I think it's an astonishing achievement by Joe Biden to have taken NATO, which had been under the onslaught for four years of, of, and and of derision by the Trump administration. I mean, in, in the most dangerous and disgusting way. And he comes in and turns that around to such a degree that NATO is more united in, in its sense of purpose, um, than it has been in, in decades. And that's what stands between the complete overrunning of Ukraine is, is, is NATO's Aid to the extraordinary courage and resilience of of the Ukrainian people, but I I, I don't. Do you see anything happening positive in the next couple of months? I don't think so.
2: Mm.
1: It's it's a meat it's a meat grinder.
2: Yeah. Well, that—that's what I, I was wondering as well about whether we should think in years, you know, looking ahead. It's another year. Is that the right unit of measurement with Russia-Ukraine, or is this going to be something that grinds on for years and years and years? And—and th- and I would just add to that, just because you're s- such a student of that society, Putin, Russia and Putin in place for a- incredibly now twenty-three years, going into year, you know, twenty-four. Whether. You've, what change you've seen in him over that period, and what change, because you're somebody who looks ahead, what change you anticipate in him? So there's two things well, there, I know. The the course
1: of, I mean, the, Stalin once endorsed uh, a Communist Party history called the Kratky Course, the short course of in, in Communist Party history, and everybody had to read it. The short course in the development of Putin is that he began at least ostensibly despite his biography with some sense of openness to the west some but that has that disappeared years ago most famously at the munich security conference it's a long time ago now you see him standing cheek by jowl with the benighted head of north korea trying to form what he's been talking about for years which is a, basically an alliance built as the antithesis of the west the antithesis of the united states which he which he portrays as hypocritical, self-interested, and brutal. And early on, he was able to point to failures of the West, um, most notably Iraq, but not only. He was obviously furious about the Balkans, but has posed West as, as purely a show. In other words, to eliminate all moral bearings and say, you know, all this talk of democracy and freedom and liberty is just utter hypocrisy and he is enjoying the catastrophe of, of American public life, political life, like nobody's business. No one is enjoying the spectacle of confusion and of Trump's resurgence more than, than Vladimir Putin, who of course stands to gain enormously if, if Trump were to ever triumph. That's a grim picture. I'm so yeah, sorry I'm bumming for bumming you out. <laughs> Ask, you know, we
0: wanted an uplifting my, conversation I, I, for Rosh Hashanah? My, my late
1: mother, <laughs> David. My late mother. I wouldn't say she was the most careful reader of the New Yorker, but she would read my pieces because really that was all that was important to her, and as well it should be. And I would write <laughs> one of these stem winders from Russia or something, and she'd say, "You know, can't you write a happy, not a sad?" <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and so there are trends in, 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 in global life, whether it's the miracles of modern medicine or research or, I hope, the good side of AI, if there is one. But, but it's harder to pin down. And, you know, and of course, you know, let, let's definitely talk about the fate of the environment and then we can all go jump out a window. <laughs> It's very funny, isn't it? This I, kind of, it, I know exactly what
2: this is, and I want to think if there's some sort of Jewish pattern here, which is yeah, the pessimism It's called the Jewish
1: show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, but it's not,
2: but it's a pessimism that wants to be optimism. Like we want to be optimistic, you know. You said you look forward. You're about the future. You're trying to say AI, and then immediately you remember there's a dark side. <laughs> we'll
1: rename the show "Plotting to Be Optimistic."
2: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because there are pessimists, and there are pessimists who want to be optimists. And I do well, I I just think help of our think there's something just think
0: of our history. I think it's the pessimists that. Always expected the worst that survived, I'm just Correct. saying. So maybe that has some sort of uh, uh, logic to it. Um, uh, but by the way, the, the magic of television, David, um, yes. contrary to uh, print, is that my mother would uh, always says, nah, you shouldn't wear... Blue, that's not your color. That's Those nice. are the comments I get. Not why won't you say your hair? Happy? Yeah, Wear yeah, more yeah, yeah. red. You know that's that, that's easier to deal with than well, write at, something at happy. any
1: time I would ever go on TV. The next day I would think, well, somebody's going to say something about the trenchant point I just made, and then <laughs> I would get no, no. <laughs> I think you're dyeing your hair, doll. No, I don't. I promise, I don't. <laughs>
2: And now in the era <laughs> yeah. of Zoom, it's always, so that's a good room you've got there. But I think it's a bit cramped at the side. You know, now it's, it's only. exactly, And everybody,
1: every single Zoom interview throughout the pandemic, Robert Caro's book sales must have gone through the roof. Everybody oh, had of course, Robert Caro behind them, red or unread. Yes, There it was.
0: <laughs> um, Lyndon Johnson, the teenage years. Okay. I want to ask uh, something about media. Uh, And I think there's a fascinating conversation that you had recently with uh, the publisher of the New York Times, A.G. Salzberger. I would recommend reading it or listening to it. It's, It's fascinating. And this is one particular exchange I want to focus on. Um, you're actually trying to get him essentially to admit that the New York Times is a liberal newspaper Ah. and he won't, right? You say, why not come out of the closet and admit to being a liberal newspaper in the broadest sense? (laughs) And he says, coming out of the closet suggests that we're hiding something. I think the premise is simply not true to be as, you know, uh, brief about this. He doesn't say that about uh, the New York Times. Now, as someone who's watching all this from afar— my impression is that recently the New York Times is trying to sort of move, I think, more to the center away from sort of woke ideology and sensitivity to, yeah. or the extra sensitivity to politically correctness. I mean, would you agree with that? But do you all, think that that's, that that's a matter
1: of the op ed page or the front, or as we used to call it, the front page?
0: Well, I think that if the daily podcast has a whole episode dedicated to the Hubble story, and the what happened there with the the left trying to vilify them and and right. i think that means more than just the op-ed pages i think there's a m- movement here I, I don't see it yet in the headlines but i think there's a movement here that is that is a conscious one do you disagree
1: well all jewish conversations begin with <laughs> it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> so I'm of a certain age, and ever since I've listened to people yapping about the New York Times one way or another, it's 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 always been conservative readers have always thought it's been a liberal paper. Take take the issue of of, of Israel. Oh, the, I, I don't know how many relatives at at one sim or another would would come. The New York Times they're very they're very anti-Israel, very anti-Israel, and I'd say, well, you know, things they're very complicated lots of conflict israel's not always right no country but it was an article of faith for people who were particularly on the right on that issue and other issues that it was um that and and maybe a lot of israelis agreed i don't know um i think they do israel i think the new york times is not a liberal paper the way haaretz is a liberal paper Haaretz, which I respect enormously and wrote a long piece about for the New Yorker a while back, kind of as an instance of a endangered institution in many ways, um, that Haaretz combines elements of both the New York Times and what used to be called the village, was, used to be the village voice. In other words, a, there was this, not that it was countercultural so much as that to my ear opinion infuses Haaretz a little bit more throughout the paper than it does in the New York Times. That said, I think every executive editor of the New York Times that I've ever met at, or have read about, when they're in office, they say what A.G. Sulzberger says, which is, of course, we're not a liberal newspaper. We're, we're fair and we're deep. And, and they were, by the way, I think they're all that too, or they strive to be uh, all the time.
0: Mm.
1: When they're out of office... <laughs> they're a little looser about it and they admit it and they admit it in a certain way. And here I think A.G. Salzberger was pretty clear even in that interview with me is that if you went through that newsroom and asked, got a sense of who people had voted for and where they went to school and where they live in New York's, and, you know, they live in big cities, yeah, they're, they fit a liberal demographic. But I don't find as an institution, there might be exceptions, as an institution, that they're on the front page, as we used to call it, in other words, in their news coverage, that they're biased. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that I think the very nature of what journalists do can skew liberal because they're, they're reporting on change. They're, they're uncovering truths that wanna be covered up. So that's seen as a quote unquote liberal activity. And maybe in the broader sense of liberal, it is. Now, at the New Yorker, point of view is more allowed in in reporting pieces, but it has to be earned and made plain and be fair, and other points of view need to be reflected.
2: Well, I just wonder, with the New Yorker, have you felt that the because the times have changed, I, I mean small t— the era that we live in has changed, that the New Yorker has had to change. In other words, that some of the uh, sort of niceties that allowed you to be, you know, capacious for other views and so on, when you have people denying actual factual truth, you've suddenly got to get a bit more trenchant and you have to, I'm not saying come off the fence, but you know what I
1: mean. For sure. For sure. I think we talk about that all the time. But remember, there's there's a tendency to think the present age is uniquely this, that, or the other thing. I I, remember the New Yorker existed during, you know, the upheavals of 1968 and the Vietnam war, those, those dramas played out in their pages. And, but it was also, and I think about this all the time, as liberal on the war, as Jonathan Schell may have been. And for example, in, in the New Yorker in, in during the war, It was also a magazine that was, while it considered itself enlightened, had just one or two black writers at any given time. It was very proud of itself for publishing James Baldwin, but that was one long piece, one long piece. And we've done much, much better in in recent years, but very belatedly. We certainly don't have enough um, Latino writers I think these issues matter. I don't think they smack of um you know as Republicans put, put it woke ideology. I think Unite uh, was putting scare quotes around it. We we're just discussing it objectively. In the present sense, we're always blind to some of our um oversights, prejudices, and stupidities. So I think the New York Times is a remarkable institution. I don't want to sound mm-hmm. like an apologist for its its um its flaws, and I am immensely relieved that it found a way economically to stay in the hands that it's in. Because I think the Salzburgers, you can argue about this moment, that moment, but they have great journalistic values and they support journalism. And they are not, by the American standards of plutocrats, especially rich. And there was a real moment when the New York Times, which was doing very poorly, say, a decade ago, that it was either going to get bought by Carlos Slim the Mexican uh, communications oligarch, or maybe Michael Bloomberg, who never struck me as somebody who really liked the New York Times at all. And that would have been bad for uh, American journalism, and it would have been bad for even American civic life.
0: Um, Can I ask about your new book, David? It's called Holding the Note, Profiles in Popular Music. Um, I would say that some of us who have known you for years... Maybe expected to read a proof or a PDF, but no, no, bought it on Kindle, <laughs> like everyone else. I was, uh, you know, Always holding the, the edition on Kindle. Now I paid fourteen ninety nine for it.
1: Excellent. Um,
0: did you get that? Did you get a little bit I of did. that guilt you, back? Could you have, you back have an, back an expense
1: at account at uh, Unholy. <laughs> Huge. Fourteen ninety nine. By the way, fourteen ninety nine seems say. awfully. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Jonathan? For a book, a little cheap, no? I think that is highly. It's the Kindle version. The, the hardcover costs
0: more, David. If it makes you feel better, <laughs> it does make me feel better.
1: I will hand deliver one. I, I, I've got to come to Israel this this year. You're just so
0: waiting far. for us to do something dramatic. I know.
1: Yeah, exactly. A, Maybe if you had a demonstration a, or something, just a little bit
0: more drama, just a bit <laughs> exactly. more drama, and I'll get on a plane. Exactly. Um, but but I want to talk about that. You know the the legends of Israeli uh, music, Einstein and Shalom Hanoch. They have a song. Uh, that starts with, I'll translate it for you. It means everyone wants to be a singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if that is part of it, part of that dream you're harboring, and we'll probably, probably, oh, thank you. There's a guitar in the, in the picture, in the Zoom conversation. Now. Is it part of that, harboring that dream of, you know, entering the rock and roll scene and actually never...
1: Do you remember the Doing song, it. So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, play electric <laughs> guitar in a rock and roll band? What would be better? Of course. I played in all kinds of bands when I was a kid, you know, in garages and, you know, dens and so on. And we were horrible. So <laughs> I got into the next best <laughs> business. Um, I That was the connection in my life to my to my old man, to my father, it, it, one of the best things he ever did for me was drag me to concerts that I thought I didn't want to go to. Who are these people? Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong. You know it, and I did the same thing with my kids. I dragged them to these kind of boomer rockers, you know, and and after even, you know, got them interested in things like Radiohead. My my theory as a parent is there's only You can only do that once with success, and it's always with the Beatles. All little kids like the Beatles. Who wouldn't like the Beatles? And then as a parent, you get cocky, and you think, well, now they'll like, I don't know, middle-period Dylan. (laughs) No, they will not. (laughs) That's the end of it. That is the end of it, and they are on to their own thing. But this is a book that's mainly about people in the rock and roll business as they age, as we all do, and what happens to their music, what happens to their lives, how they how they face this, and so there are pieces in there about Springsteen and Dylan and Patti Smith and Mavis Staples of the Staples Singers, and and the great Leonard Cohen, you know, who obviously came to Israel in 1973 and played in for soldiers and had a very interesting relationship to Israel, and with Leonard Cohen, I went to see him as he was dying. He knew he was dying. And we sat there together in his living room for, you know, like it was like work, you know, he was, he was going to do this from nine to five for two days running. And I've never met a more eloquent artist, not least at the end of his life. And it was one of the most remarkable experiences of, of, of my life to, to see how, he looked back on his own performances and failures and triumphs and then, and, and his sense of spiritual life, Buddhist, Jewish, uh, all the rest, and, and how he faced death. It's, it's just one of the great experiences of my life. And to have seen him, I'd only saw him on stage once and it was in this final tour and it was transforming. I'll never forget it. He, and, and his music was never better than when his voice was in an old man's voice one octave lower than he even had when he was a young guy. So th- people can't see that I'm nodding to every word you're saying. I, I, <laughs> no, and I I'm read an- Jonathan's column in the guardian about seeing Springsteen. I think it was in Hyde park, right, Jonathan? Yeah. And you know, you're watching a 73 year old guy who, by the way, just stopped his tour because he had wait for it, a peptic ulcer. Oy Oi <laughs> <laughs> oi oy.
0: <laughs> oy, oy.
1: I have a peptic ulcer. And, you know, and, and God bless him. I hope it goes away. But, so it's about, the book is about music, but it's also about um not to get too grand mortality.
2: No, and they, they are li- intimately linked. I That's what I saw when I saw Springsteen performing. But your Leonard Cohen piece, I remember it so well. And it was, I mean, for me, it was very affirming of, a, of an argument I've made on this podcast a couple of times, which is, I believe he is the most Jewish artist of the 20th
1: century, and I know there is argument. And so I want to hear your counter to that. I, I think that's, true i think that's true in his sensibility i can't think of another artist who while writing songs was also reading the zohar but and not not in a kind of trendy way not like in some you know god forgive me i hope i'm not being mean here but you know madonna i think didn't she visit svad and got involved in she, she the 15 minutes and he was very serious. He's a serious spiritual seeker and reader and intellectual who also happened to write terrific pop songs.
2: One thing I love is that was people will be going to synagogue a day or two after hearing this, or even maybe the day of hearing it, and the Unetana Tokev prayer for Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> which now people in synagogue say, oh, this is the Leonard Cohen bit of who by fire... <laughs> Who buy water and so on. And you know, there is something deeply rabbinic to me about his his own gloss of that ancient text.
1: He was a synagogue goer, I forget the name of the place in LA. And he's in our interviews, he talked endlessly about his growing up. First of all, he's a well-to-do kid. You know, his Montreal, they were, I think they were in the Schmanta business, if I'm not mistaken. And they
0: probably didn't call it that.
1: They didn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just a guess.
1: I think I'm right about that, or at least partly in that. And then, you know, he, he had a real synagogue life, a real life of an upper middle class kid standing, you know, for long hours on Shabbat in, next to his parents. And he's buried near his parents in the same Jewish synagogue in, in, in Montreal. He is a rooted, was a rooted person intellectually and geographically in a way. And, you know, I think he enjoyed the pink catalog just fine, Um, although he didn't seem to do well with money. But with women, he did okay. His father, clothing store owner
2: Nathan Bernard Cohen. There you go. Clothing store. owner died when Cohen was nine years old, and the family attended Congregation Sha'ar Hashemayim,
1: uh, which he then
2: featured in, you'll remember, the synagogue choir features on uh, You Want It Darker. Singing Hinaini in this brilliant a, album.
1: After he died, I was invited to speak at that very at that very shul, and the cantor was so proud to have been on that album. So, you know, I'm trying to think where cantors appear <laughs> on exactly other, other albums. I can't think of any. I can't <laughs> think it. of any. Not at that, not at that magnitude. He was a magnificent human being.
0: I'm I'm thinking back to that legendary piece of yours. What I remember starkly from it is that point where you describe him as a Jewish mother trying to convince you to eat anything, which is very Jewish e uh, Oh him. my god, but, it was like
1: every 10 minutes. And he had all this stuff, <laughs> gefilte fish and 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 he was a big proselytizer of the Montreal bagel, which is something I, and this is going to be the most controversial part of our our conversation. <laughs> I'm sure here. the Montreal bagel is as overrated As the Yankees this season. You you heard it here first. I don't understand it. I'm sick of hearing about this from my friend Adam Gopnik. They're smaller, they're (laughs) tastier. No, they're not. They're just not.
0: Um, Okay, but we have our headline, but I'm wondering, I'm very surprised you didn't challenge Jonathan on saying that Dylan is the most Jewish uh, artist of he's the a, 20th think century, he's but greater, I, I expected that. I think that.
1: he's the greater artist. And one time, Dylan was in a car with Leonard Cohen and Dylan... <laughs> maniac. Dylan says to Leonard Cohen, according to Leonard, um, you're the number... I think I'm getting this right. You're the number one songwriter of, of, of our era. I'm number zero. And Leonard <laughs> Cohen took this to mean that Cohen was pretty good, But Dylan transcended all rankings and ratings and so on. Um, And and I think he's right. I think he's right. And here we are, it's 2023, and I just got the announcement Dylan is coming through again, age 81, 2? I'm not sure if he's the same age as Joe Biden or not. And he, like Verdi or Titian, is that rare artist who in old age is continues to change and have more things to say, um, that is not the usual artistic pattern. Usually you develop, you have a moment of originality, you imitate yourself and then you fade and that's a miracle itself. Dylan is off the charts. I stand by that. That in Montreal bagels. That's that's where I <laughs> plant my flag.
2: Firm, controversial, opinionated David Remnick. He's the man with views on big topics. Um, we will have you back one day to talk solely about Bob Dylan. Um, that's a
0: threat, by the way.
2: No, we have to do that. But I so agree with you about Leonard Cohen. And, you know, it's a bad thing to feel envious in journalism. But that encounter you had with Leonard Cohen, I can't think of a more satisfying experience uh. for a journalist who's interested in the kind of things... All three of us are interested in i think that's um that as you say well it was obviously one of the great privileges of your life um it was so we're all looking forward uh, to new year it's been an absolute pleasure um seeing it in with you um david remnick thanks so much for coming on
1: unholy thank you shana tova to you and your kids and your families and um and all your friends
0: shana tova, david thank you shana
1: tova.
2: Well, that's my idea, possibly, of Rosh Hashanah Heaven, sitting around talking about Leonard Cohen, slice of honey cake at my side, with uh, somebody who is a total devotee and had the, as we said, the great privilege of that encounter. But yes, the debate, Dylan uh, Cohen, is just, you know, it's endless. And with a guest as eloquent and brilliant as David Remnick, it is an absolute pleasure to do it.
0: Yes, and and we will um, forgive him for not giving us enough reasons for optimism, although the end of our conversation was, I think, optimistic. Probably the answer uh, is music and arguing about Jewish singers. And I think that could maybe lead us into a good new year.
2: He did. He gave us some sweetness there um, to (laughs) end on. But you're right. Forgiveness, the theme of uh, the season, and therefore Mm -hmm. leading us naturally through our awards because... The spirit of forgiveness is not often aroused by our choices for chutzpah. Well, I seek forgiveness from you, Yonit, because so often I end up looking to you to anoint our award winner in this chutzpah category. So go on, one more time. Who who, who stands out this week?
0: Yeah, well, I, you know, in a minute, you're going to choose your mensch of the week and mensch of the year. So I will just sort of giving you you know, in answer to that, I decided to choose the biggest chutzpah of the year. So we we mentioned the story before, but I was just giving the sort of ultimate chutzpah award of the year. Would that be the right way to call it? And we we looked long and hard because the competition is quite fierce. Um, when you look at all of the stories we uh, brought uh, in this year, I think probably our biggest winner. And, you know, if you have a disagreement, just tell me, is the story of Aryeh Deri. I think we it was on episode 101, if I'm not mistaken, that we uh, presented the story for the first time. Uh, Aryeh Deri, the chairman of the Shas party here in Israel, was trying to explain in a tweet why he is uh, making sure that it would be easier for uh, Holocaust survivors to, you know, how we can make life (laughs) life being the operative word here, easier for Holocaust uh, survivors. And what he tweeted was, uh, we decided to help them here in Israel financially uh, to give them a, I'm sorry, it's even funny, the second time around, funnier the second time around, a 50% discount on their burial plot. Which really is just jaw dropping chutzpah. If you want to help people, help them when they're alive. Uh, and another point to make on that is probably why give them a 50% discount if this is so important to you? Just give it out for free. Um, so I'm cho- that was me choosing my favorite chutzpah award. It stood of out the even year. at
2: the time. Even at yes. the time, it stood out as just being another level. He had taken chutzpah to another level. It is truly like something somebody might make up. I think it's a worthy winner of our most chutzpahdik act of the entire year. <laughs> Generous to the Holocaust survivor by saying, not here's a burial plot for free, which would anyway have been a bit tricky, but we'll give you a 50% discount. <laughs> it's horrible. It's like, I'm afraid, even, it's like, it sounds like the punchline of an anti Semitic joke. That's how horrible. Well, that he did erase
0: the tweet quite quickly, but, you know, it's still there. damage it's, The um, damage was done,
2: and Unholy never forgets with our <laughs> capacious memory. We remember that story. En route to Mensch of the year, which I think there's probably only one winner, it has moved people around the world as they have watched it. People have had those photographs shared on social media each Saturday night and sometimes on other nights, too. And I'm talking about the hundreds of thousands, by some estimate, maybe millions, if you add them all together, uh, of the Israeli public who have come on the streets, those protesters, to save their democracy. It has inspired people we know in Poland and Hungary and around the world, even people who really are not too sympathetic to Israel, have had to say, we take our hat off to the Israeli public and the demonstrating public because... They cannot think of a more... And scholars of this subject have said there is not an example of a more sustained mass participation movement against authoritarianism and to save democracy than the Israeli one. In the academic literature, it stands out as a rare example. And the sheer stamina, they have been doing it, as you said earlier, Yoni, from the very beginning of the year, week after week after week, in huge numbers. So I think the mensch of the year are the public who have turned out for these uh, Save Democracy protests uh, and uh, glad to nominate them.
0: I want to kind of continue your thought to say something about the year ahead, the year that we had and what we are looking into, because this won't be, I'm sad to say this, it won't be a quiet year for Israel. It's very clear that the judicial overhaul and uh, the protests are not going away. It's very clear that the divides that maybe Israel has been successful in hiding for a very long time and now been exposed, this is not going away. There are a lot of other questions and deep questions about exemptions of ultra-Orthodox or, of course, security-related questions uh, and a lot of feeling about the tensions, the security-related tensions in the air. But I will tell you that I'm a little bit optimistic. That might be surprising to you. You know I'm an optimist at heart because living in this region, you do need some optimism and a hefty dosage of ability to deny—that's for sure. Um, but uh, but I am a bit of an optimist because. I wouldn't invite this tempest that we're embroiled in right now. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is something that we should, you know, be thankful for. But once it happened, this is a year in which the Israeli public proved that it cares, that it deeply cares about, you know, the questions, the fundamental questions uh, of our existence and the fundamental questions of our future. And this might be the year where we, you know, grow up and decide who we are. But I think that about that, this is, of course— you know, very tumultuous time. It's a very uncertain time. But I think that we can, all of us, all of the Israelis, or at least the sort of, you know, not the radical fringes of both sides, but the mainstream is Israel can uh, emerge from this uh, uh, better.
2: Well, it's like we talked about with David about Jews and optimism. Um, I think Jews are pessimists who want to be optimists. It's a kind of optimistic (laughs) form of pessimism. And I think you. Or a pessimistic
0: uh, form of optimism. It really depends on who you I think
2: it's different. It yearns for optimism, it it, it bends towards optimism, even if it is Mm -hmm. a little bit aware Mm -hmm. of the reality. So I think you've articulated that very affectingly, actually. And that is a very encouraging thought for the year ahead. I think we want to say to our listeners, um, you've been with us for this past year and, you know, and before, we wish you a happy and sweet New Year, wherever you are. And, uh, and same to you, Yonit, Shunatova. And we, You and I will see each other back around our metaphorical New Year table. <laughs> Uh, next week
0: and we, we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer Omer Primat and Rom Attic you have a very good year Johnny Friedland don't get too drunk on uh, grape juice and gefilte fish <laughs> um, <laughs> and potent
1: to, combination <laughs> and intoxicating
0: cocktail. I would say intoxicating combination uh, and to new adventures and new experiences and we shall meet next
2: year yeah Shana Tova Tova This
0: podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.